think we are recording. Okay, testing. Test again? Yeah, test, test. Okay, looks good. Okay, sure. Okay. Uh, Finally, we are here. That took a... (laughs) We have a bunch of new equipment. I don't know what this is going to do to our sound quality, but hopefully good things and not bad things. Yes. I think in the future it will make for good sound quality. That's... Almost yeah. optimistic. At least that's my that's my hope. <laughs> okay. Well, I've got to be optimistic about something. All right. We're all just trying to do our best. <laughs> do your best, everybody. Yeah. So beyond our technical issues, we've also had uh, a couple of our trade waiters missing in action. I believe that uh, Jess Pollard, in her pursuit of uh, her obsession with jellyfish, uh, filled her apartment with uh, water so that she could... Uh, take care of a, a, a few dozen jellyfish. Yeah, I guess that didn't go so well. Yeah, yeah. Strata had to shut it down. Yeah, which, I mean, <laughs> it's a strange turn for Jess because she's always been kind of a lizard otaku. But a jellyfish otaku, that seems like that's, that's a whole new territory. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I think uh, it is interesting, though, that now Kathleen Gross is a lizard otaku. Yeah, maybe that's why Jess had to, felt like she had to switch. Yeah. Only one otaku per trade waiters. Uh, only one otaku type per trade waiters. Yeah. Uh, I think that's that is the rule. Yeah. We did establish that. Yeah. So so Kathleen's busy obsessively drawing uh, every type of lizard that she can remember. I <laughs> uh, could not be here to record. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the Trade Waiters. Today's episode, we have read the first volume of Princess Jellyfish by Akiko Higashimura. I believe there's only the one version of this in English, so... I if, think so. Yeah. I think the the only volume that's available is this double volume, and it's the same whether it's digital or in print. Yeah. Uh, and it's a pretty recent edition. I think this only came out in 2014 or something. Okay. Is is there only the two volumes currently available? Uh, no, I think there's more. There's 16 volumes in total. Wow. Wow. Okay. But I think that's, I think, I was reading the article and it was a little bit hard to understand. I think the 16 volumes is the single ones that were released in Japan. So that would be eight, eight big total volumes. Oh, volumes. okay. Okay. Yeah. Eight's but, not entirely unreasonable. It's not It's not an insurmountable <laughs> amount of comics to read. If you stack them all up, that would be a lot of manga to climb through, though. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you put that next to Akira, and I'm sure you're going to think, like, mm. oh, it's just a little bite-sized. I don't know. <laughs> I've got Akira on my bookshelf, and it only takes up a couple feet. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we should do character-revealing questions. Yeah, certainly. So, please introduce yourselves and what I would like to know. Uh, I am the one who selected Princess Jellyfish, which is about a nerd who is obsessed with jellyfish, but I want to know what is your favorite aquatic creature? Ooh, oh, I have an answer for that already. Well, let's uh, go. I'm Jonathan, and I love octopuses. Octopuses ah. are cool and weird and smart, and uh, anytime I see a video or a GIF of uh, an octopus, I always repost it. Always repost octopus. That's my rule. <laughs> Ooh, nice. 
Oh, man. Uh, you know, I was going to say octopus. Uh, so I'm Jeff Ellis. <laughs> Don't uh, steal my octopus. And I was going to say octopus, but I'm instead going to say uh, dolphin because I watched some documentaries about how smart dolphin are, and it's pretty, pretty shocking uh, just how social and how close to almost being like humans uh, dolphins are. And um, I saw a bunch of dolphins when I was on my cruise, and that was also really cool. Ooh. Nice. Um, I just want to share some whale facts that I just learned from the internet. Whale facts. Yeah. Welcome to our new uh, (laughs) trade radio segment, Whale Facts. (laughs) Um, Apparently there's an entire class of whales called beaked whales, which spend most of their time deep in the ocean and only come up for air uh, and can hold their breath longer than any other species and scientists know very little about them and are still discovering new species of beaked whales because that's just how little they know I have a whale fact whale facts whale facts did you know that there are researchers in the Antarctic who are trying to learn more about the current health status of whales by flying a drone into the spout water that is being blown up and collecting <laughs> biological samples that way and then taking it back for analysis. And wow. that drone is called the Snotbot. Wow. <laughs> That's my tech spin real fact. <laughs> okay. That's pretty good. Yeah. I wish I had a third whale fact, yeah, but I on, don't know whales on. that well. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well I, know, I know that um, dolphins have been known to have names for each other and have been observed talking about other dolphins that aren't in the same... Uh, location. Oh my god, weird. I've heard that. Dolphins, well, fact. dolphins <laughs> gossip about each other. <laughs> I don't think octopuses dolphins. do that. They're not quite that smart. You don't know for sure. <laughs> well, they're very. most of them are very solitary. Uh, there is an exception. There is, uh, oh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to rem- remember the name of it. There's a place that's like a, an octopus city where it's Whoa. a bunch of octopuses who all happen to live in the same place and uh, spend an unusual amount of time around each other for octopuses. Well, maybe they are solitary animals because they went through the stage where they were all talking crap about each other. Oh, and they Mm. learned. They learned. That's how smart they are. Octopus facts. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm I'm Jam, and uh, I don't have a specific favorite aquatic animal, but I want to specifically call out when they send the the trawlers to the very, very bottom of the ocean and all the weird stuff that they dig up. And so quite often there's like this live stream of weird stuff at the bottom of the ocean. They're like, look at this, it's super weird. And I'm always into that. <laughs> nice. I can't remember the names of any of them, but some of them look like tubes, some of them look like sticks, some of them look like weird glowy worms. They're all great. Well, that was, yeah. I A long time ago I read uh, Sphere by Michael Crichton. Oh, and yeah. uh, even though it's not... The best book, um, it had a big part of just talking about how the deeper you go underwater, the more alien it becomes, and that we would almost benefit from not worrying about traveling into outer space, but actually just seeing if we could plunge deeper into the depths of our own planet, because we'd find all this crazy stuff that we probably just have no clue is going on below the surface. Yeah, there's so much out there, we still don't know. (laughs) <laughs> we know there's life there. We don't have to float through the lifeless stars and look at dust. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, our intro, and today we are reading Princess Jellyfish. So this is a two-volume 
Trade Waiter series. So we will be reading episode, or sorry, we will be discussing book one during this episode, and next episode we'll be discussing book two. So, uh, spoiler alert, we are going to talk about the entirety of volume one during this episode. But this is a book, as John mentioned, that's by Akiko Higashimura, and it was serialized in Japan from 2008 to 2017, so it's a pretty recent series. Uh, in 2010, it won the Kadansha Award for Best Shoujo Manga, and it was also nominated for an Eisner in 2017. Ooh. Oh, yeah. wow. Do we know how often manga gets nominated for Eisners? I don't have that statistic. Because that's really interesting. Yeah, it's unusual. So they do have a category for, like, best foreign work. Oh, okay. And so I think it was nominated under that category, but that it has to contend with all the French comics and everything yeah. like that. So pretty notable, because... Uh, the Eisners, uh, the the reason that I think you're surprised is that you don't often hear about Eisners for manga. Yeah. It's unusual. Uh, and I looked into Akiko's Higashimura's other works, and there was nothing that I recognized, but for the sake of completion, some of her other works include Fruits Komori, Kisekai Yuka-chan, and Kakukaku Shikajika, which is actually an autobio series. Huh. Which, and it's mm. another thing that you don't, well, I haven't read a lot of. Japanese autobio, but it would be interesting. But yeah, today we're discussing this story, which uh, I gave a little bit of an intro about, but our protagonist is named uh, Tsukimi, and the reason we're talking about jellyfish is because she is a jellyfish otaku, as we call it. She's just obsessed with jellyfish, and she lives in this apartment complex, which is populated exclusively by women, and exclusively by women otaku, and they're all otaku for different things. Uh, and we meet our hero right as she's rescuing a jellyfish. But I thought I wanted to get your overall impressions first. Yeah. I really like this series. This is not the first time I've read it. Uh, I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, I'm not sure that I have a lot of in-depth stuff to say about it. I just enjoy the fun characters and a type of story that I don't think I've ever actually read before. Uh, so it's, it's, I always want different things. Different is good. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I I will say that I think when I started reading this, I was a little bit apprehensive. I was like, oh, I don't know, this may not be my cup of tea. But then there's the twist, and I was like, okay, now I'm intrigued. And it still had, I, I, there are certain things I want to nitpick, but I, I was actually, I got really invested by the end of this. It's It's got a lot of... Um, Mangaisms, sure. <laughs> um, and then also, just I'm gonna gonna do my uh, put my I lived in Japan hat on for a second because we use the word otaku, and I think just for listeners, a lot of people in who speak English have a misunderstanding that otaku means geek or like nerd, and that it's somehow equivalent to just being like a fan, like fan culture, but like. It has very different connotations in Japan because I remember the first time when I talked to a Japanese person and I said, oh yeah, I really like comics, so I'm kind of an otaku. And immediately they were like, oh no, like you seem like a very nice person and like you clearly like have personal hygiene habits. Like you're, yeah, you don't, don't, don't talk down uh, to yourself like that. Like you're fine. You're not, you're not a big mess like an otaku is. Like it's a really shameful thing to be an otaku in Japanese society <laughs> and I think that this manga does a good job of addressing that and I also enjoy the fact that it does I think clarify the fact that otaku just means person that's obsessed with anything 
And so there is no, none of the girls in this mansion are obsessed with just manga. Like, they have very, very specific obsessions, and it's very clear that it's sort of bad for them that they're this obsessed with these things. And I, I think that the depiction in here is good. So if you're not clear on what an otaku is in Japan, read this manga. It will clarify that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think it also has a lot of... Uh, because these are our main characters, though, There's even though like y- the way you're describing the word otaku seems to match very closely with the way these characters are depicted in the book, we're still supposed to empathize with them. Yes. Like, it's from their point of view. Yeah. It's not like... Uh, here are some awful people we're going to make fun of. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think that's one of the things that I really appreciated about the work. So yeah. It's not uh, the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, similar to you, John, uh, <laughs> I'm always hunting for something different, and this, in terms of manga, is quite different from, I think, a lot of usual tropes. So you, you will find otaku characters, but they're not portrayed... Uh, hmm, how can I put this? They're either portrayed inaccurately, where the otaku is actually the hero... Or they're portrayed in a really cruel way, whereas this one seems accurate but endearing, mm-hmm. right? So I, I emphasized with all of the different otaku characters, and I thought they were all reminding me of people that I know in terms of social <laughs> awkwardness uh, yeah. and their little quirks uh, that they have and their reluctance to, to integrate with the rest of Japanese society. Uh, I thought yeah. it was really endearing and fun, and yeah, just it was a different and refreshing comic to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, it continued to defy my expectations in, in many ways. Like, I mean, there were a few moments that, like, I kind of expected, like, when the, you know, fashionable... Fr- I, maybe we should start with just who this fashionable person is. Yeah, so um, his name is Kurano- Kuranosuke. Yeah, so Kuranosuke originally gets introduced uh, to Tsukimi's world as... A fashionable girl, but then almost almost immediately you find out, actually, uh, he's a boy who likes to dress up as a girl. And then he gives her a makeover. And just naturally I was like, oh yeah, of course, she just needs to take those glasses off and let her hair down. And now she's like breaking hearts left, right, and center. Uh, which, that's a trope in multiple cultures media. But like, I was kind of, kind of expecting that, but uh, you know... I did enjoy that generally, like, there were things that surprised me a lot. Um, the first being that the fashionable girl t- turns out to be a boy. Um, and I also enjoyed just the frankness of how, you know, because I, 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 my, my perception of Japan is that it is still fairly conservative in terms of LGBTQ. So I enjoyed the frankness in the in the author's depiction that, you know, there's this boy who's really comfortable with just putting on women's clothes and playing the part of a, of a woman. And they also make it clear that this is, like, it's not um, transgender. It's just like, or I'm not sure how to so, describe it, but, like, he enjoys dressing up as a woman, but he still also kind of identifies as male and sort of is comfortable switching between those two roles and it isn't, isn't looking to, like, transition, but just sort of is comfortable kind of jumping between male, yeah. female. So this is something where I think we have to tread pretty carefully because this is a, it is a complex portrayal. And there is a lot of ambiguity, I think, in the uh, the gender identity of mm-hmm. Kuranosuke. Exactly, you know, whether or not he actually identifies as a woman and would switch uh, his pronouns to she might be different in a different cultural context. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, so it's it's still a little bit unclear. And I, I like to 
let the characters speak for themselves. So mm-hmm. Kuranosuke seems comfortable with he, he pronouns. Yeah. Uh, he seems comfortable with the fact that he is in a in a male body, and so I, I like that we can we can just yeah. take that as granted for yeah. the character themselves. Yeah. I mean, I, so, yeah. I mean, that yeah, was I, that was my reading of it too. That uh, I was trying to figure out. Okay, I don't think this character is trans. They yeah, he keeps using male pronouns for himself almost by mistake, like forgetting to use female pronouns, uh, and has to be reminded. So that he doesn't give away what's happening, but I, f- I find he's a, he's a really interesting character with a lot of depth. Doesn't necessarily seem like he has a lot of depth at first, but like gradually it seems to be the case. And it raised a, a lot of questions for me about LGBT uh, culture in Japan because I don't really know that much about it. Yeah, um, I gather from this book that there are sort of there seem to be like slightly different interpretations of categories. Mm-hmm. So he is described in the book as being an okama, but at no point is he given any kind of like descriptive identity labels that we are familiar with in the West, in the English-speaking world. Yeah, I mean, like it's been a long time since I was uh, in Japan, but I do remember like when I was there in about 2007, like there were still lots of Japanese people who would just tell me like, oh, we don't have gay people in our country, like... <laughs> And you go, are, have you been to Kabuchi, Kabukicho? Because I'm pretty sure that if you go there, you're going to find that... Anyways, yeah. Yeah, so it's like I think we it's important to understand that the identity of Okama might be different from what we would understand in the West, and it, it might be its own unique thing with different contexts and rules that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. But I agree with it's a really interesting portrayal with a lot of complexity and nuance, and uh, I enjoyed the dichotomy. What's so it's interesting is that... Kuranosuke is a double for for two different reasons he should not be allowed in uh, the apartment complex. Number one, because he's a stylish, which is the kind of category that they ascribe to people who are very fashionable and beautiful in Japan and just too different from them. So he's a stylish, but then he's also a man, you know, like he's mm-hmm. biologically male, which is not allowed. It's it's women only in the apartment complex. In fact, they yeah. call it a nunnery. A nunnery. Yeah. That's their nickname for the house they live in. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I quite enjoy the dynamic of their household where, because <laughs> um, they're all otaku, but then it's also sort of established that all of them are sort of working as assistants to a manga artist who lives in the in the house. Yeah. But they never see the manga artist. They only get notes slipped under the door. <laughs> so she is the the penultimate like otaku because she doesn't even leave her room. Yeah. Um and and they, they all uh, at times get these notes slipped out like I'm behind on a deadline. I need everyone to draw these backgrounds and suddenly the whole house goes into a panic and they're like working on this manga for this person you've never even seen the face of. Um yeah. But I did enjoy the when she passes the note, like, what would happen if someone brought a man into the apartment and then the note comes back out, like, death. Yeah, it's not even written on a separate note. It's, like, written over top yeah. of the first note. Yeah. yeah. So there's, there's some pretty clear boundaries established right at the beginning that this character throws out the window, uh, yeah. which is, is super fun. And I love how comfortable they are just, like, busting through the door and being like, I'm here now. This is, I'm your friend. (laughs) And that none of them have the wherewithal to actually stop this. Yes. Because they just don't have those social skills. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think that they did a good job of just um, depicting socially awkward people because they just don't pick up on cues. They're just really into what they're into and they're not as perceptive of maybe the nuance of situations going on around them. 
Um, but it's like they're in general, though. I'd say like their heart is in the right place. And then there's sort of I think if there's any sort of points where they're sort of being made fun of, it's just when they talk about like questions you never ask on a Mars, or, like, <laughs> things you never ask on a Mars to do. Which I, I never heard those. that term before, but I enjoyed the way they use that too as this blanket term for them all as a Mars and. There's like these rules that govern them that they just can't can't do these things or can't be asked these questions. Yeah, and... you cannot socially <laughs> transcend those boundaries. It's impossible, and yeah. uh, I enjoyed that a lot. I also like how like there's a lot of sort of social awkwardness between the characters as well, where because they are who they are, they don't always get along because they just don't know how to talk to each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there's. Um, there's one point where uh, Banba, I wrote down a little list of who's who because yeah. I'm going to get mixed up otherwise. That would have been a good thing for uh-huh. everyone you to can, do. You can borrow so my list I, if you yeah. want. Call me the list otaku for okay. now. <laughs> um, so Banba, like after Kurano Suke uh, feeds them all high quality meat as like a bribe to be allowed in his house, uh, then for like the next half a chapter, Banba just refers to, um, refers to him as meat, just like meat. <laughs> And she just says that and then expects <laughs> food to come her way. Meat, yeah. meat. <laughs> like, this is not I, how you talk to people. <laughs> I, I also enjoyed that as a solution to uh, Kuranosuke being a stylish and not being welcome in the house. And then just going like, well, here's some Kobe beef. And suddenly it's like, all is forgiven. Yeah. You are our best friend now, as long as you bring more Kobe beef. <laughs> I also really like the, the level of their nerdiness. Uh, like, there's one... Mayaya, yeah. who is a Three Kingdoms otaku, and, and I've read I didn't make it all the way through the Three Kingdoms because it's really long. <laughs> I made it like a fifth of the way through, <laughs> so I got about a fifth of her references, and I'm yes, I understand, I know who Guan Yu is. Yeah, <laughs> I had a hard time with Mayaya because I have no background in uh, in Three Kingdoms, and so I was like reading the reference and reading the translation note, and still not really being <laughs> able to get it. <laughs> See, I I just sort of in my head I was like, oh, it's like she's obsessed with Harry Potter or something, and so like <laughs> I didn't get the references, but then I also was like, oh, she must be referencing a character from the Three Kingdoms who behaves in this way, and she's using it as a metaphor that no one else is picking up. Like I don't know, I just yeah. like I didn't get it, but I got it. If that makes any sense. <laughs> I, I loved the way Mayaya was drawn, though. I think she has the, this kind of extroverted energy that the other characters lack, and the way that mm-hmm. she's always posing in a really dramatic way, mm-hmm. uh, and the way that it was drawn in very stylish, completely noodle-bent arms <laughs> as she flails around the house and into rooms and through doors. And uh, that was one of my favorite aspects of the art of this yeah. uh, this volume. <laughs> Yeah, and you never see her eyes. Yeah, yeah I, I noticed, like, even when she poses, she poses with her hands in front of her face, almost <laughs> as if what she wants you to see of her is the pose, and then this is her outward shield, and then you never get to actually see her. Yeah. yeah. Sort of it's a defense mechanism kind of a thing, maybe. Right. Yeah, that's there's probably a lot of truth to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So getting back to maybe the, like, uh, interesting sort of gender dynamics, I sort of... Again, for like a twist, I found it interesting that uh, Kuranosuke, you know, gives Tsukimi like a makeover. And so inevitably after she gets this makeover that makes her incredibly beautiful because now she's not wearing glasses. <laughs> his Kuranosuke's brother comes by and sees her 
and immediately just falls head over heels in love with her. And then it sort of, initially you think, okay, so this is, the, the, the plot line is that Kuranosuke is going to help Tsukimi kind of clean herself up and, and eventually she's going to end up with uh, Kuranosuke's brother. But then as the story progresses, you see that like the relationship between Kuranosuke and his brother is really fraught and... Uh, Kuranosuke can't recognize Tsukimi when she has her glasses on because she's just so hideous when she has yeah. glasses on. It's almost, it's almost like a social blindness. Um, it's like when she becomes an otaku again, it's a yeah. part of that society that you no longer recognize. Yeah, and then, but then it sort of looks like at the end of this first book, it looks like maybe they're going to get together and then you cut to Kuranosuke's internal monologue and he's suddenly having these feelings that maybe he's jealous of his brother and he's kind of questioning like, am I feeling jealous? What's going on with me? And I was really surprised to see that because I was really seeing Kuranosuke as being sort of the fairy godmother to the Cinderella character. And then it sort of switched. And now like leading into the next book, it's like, Oh, we got a love triangle situation going on. Yeah. Um, which and I found, found kind of interesting. It's kind of fun. It's fun because there's a there's a really interesting dynamic between Kuranosuke and Tsukimi. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's a, fa- a mutual fascination. There's a, a blossoming friendship. There's a there's a mutual interest there that's founded on something. And yeah, yeah. I like it. It's not based on nothing. Like a yeah. lot of relationships in this type of story would not be based on anything except like, oh, now she's not wearing glasses. Now she's hot. Okay. Yeah. But no, it's not not based on that at all. Yeah. Kuranosuke finds. Uh, well, I mean, the the reason that they met is because uh, she was trying to rescue a jellyfish, mm-hmm. and he's the one who who helped her buy the tank and get everything back to the uh, the apartment to save Clara the jellyfish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that was really sweet that even from the outset, it, it was a, a really positive aspect of his character that he would stop in the street and be like, why are you yelling at this person? And <laughs> yeah. they need to, they, this is what this person needs. Make it happen. Why are you even standing in their way? Which is a very privileged way to go through <laughs> life, but uh, uh, still still endearing. Yeah. <laughs> and I like that he's basically an otaku himself. He's a fashion otaku. Right. Uh, where he just really, really loves women's fashion. And... This is a big part of why he likes to to wear it because like it's so great. Why wouldn't you just wear it yourself too? Yeah. And so uh, he kind of fits in with this Amar's world for that reason. Even if the other uh, other characters haven't quite necessarily figured out that that's what's going on. Yeah. 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 I I, uh, I also um, I sort of enjoyed that. There's like a moment where Kurenosuke is talking about his sort of past uh, life where. When he walks around dressed as a boy, all the girls are throwing themselves at him because he's just such a beautiful man that they they just really want him to be their boyfriend. But he sort of finds the fashionable circles he's in, he's really bored with it. And he dislikes the sort of two-dimensionalness of a lot of the people he interacts with in that world. And so I find that once he meets uh, Tsukimi, I think he gets really kind of drawn into just the sincerity and the substance of of that household that even if everyone's really kind of messy and unfashionable like everyone has real passion and interest in things and so even though uh Kuranosuke can't understand why Tsukimi's obsessed with jellyfish it's like he admires the fact that she's just so committed to like this this thing that she's passionate about you know and I saw I sort of found like that was an interesting dynamic yeah I also really like 
that uh, later on in the first volume, everybody in the Amara's house gets makeovers. Yeah. Uh, but I like that the justification for it makes sense. It's not, you're all going to dress nice so that you can go get boyfriends. It's here's a specific goal. You want to look nice so you can get your house yeah, and so buy it. To, to take a step back, the conflict here is that... Uh, it's actually Shu's family, so Kuranosuke's family, which is trying to move forward on uh, condo development, right? And the, what is it, the Amamizukan, their apartment complex, is slated to be torn down or bought out. So they have to go to this developer's meeting and state their case uh, in, in opposition of this. And it's too intimidating for for a bunch of otaku. And it's no one's going to take them seriously. No never ask an Amars to go address a, a public <laughs> forum. <laughs> but I, I like the way that that he describes it to them. Like, this is, uh, this is like cosplay. This is your armor. You're wearing this because we're going to accomplish a thing. Yeah. Like, there was a time many years ago when I dressed like a slob on a regular basis because why should I care about fashion? <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then... I think I can't remember the exact circumstances, but eventually I realized that no, I can care about this because, like, not because I have to, but because I want to, like, de- depending on the circumstance. So, like, I re- I remember feeling a certain way where it would feel like trying to make myself look better would be kind of a betrayal of some kind of something or other, mm. uh, and I. I the the change for me personally reminds me of what happens in that part of the story, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how many of them really got the message. Yeah, no, I mean, that's true. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think the characters necessarily feel that way, but the way yeah. that it's framed in the mm-hmm. narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and again, it's like, I think if if the story had gone in a direction where uh, Kuranosuke was giving all of the Amars makeover so they could get boyfriends I I think that would be like a very different kind of manga that yeah. wouldn't be as interesting where it's like as you say it, it justifies it it makes sense to me as a reader like they want to save this house and what they're going to show up like looking like slobs and expect to be taken seriously like I mean you know there's a reason I wear a collared shirt when I teach a class because it changes the dynamic than if I'm just wearing like a rock concert t-shirt with a hole in it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like Fashion is a communication tool. You are presenting an image to people of something you want to say. Something else that I appreciated about that scene was that every character had a... F- like, Kuranosuke was able to select a fashion that worked well for them. And it really speaks to uh, his ability to really... He's, his in-depth understanding of fashion, of how to say... How to look at a person and see their potential and find clothes that really match that potential. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting to see the uh, the stylish versions of everyone. I, <laughs> I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, yeah. And it's they're not the sort of the Hollywood... Like, let's take a typical Hollywood actress and like make her look like a nerd. Yeah. But then later, she gets a makeover. It's like, no, they're still the same weird body type yeah. characters. It's just like they are wearing fashion that complements them. Yeah. I think it's also a very relatable uh, plot line for those of us uh, in the Vancouver area that the Amars are in danger of losing <laughs> their house because a giant heartless condo developer wants to tear down their house and turn it into like a huge 
shopping condo tower for rich people. Uh, for rich people. Yeah, and, very common story here. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I I uh, appreciate that sort of the villain of the story is uh, Shoko, who's kind of the representative of the condo developer. Um, and then I just realized I was looking kind of through. We're sort of talking about, I guess, in in the Japanese version, we're talking about two books. So in the kind of after the midway point of book one. I will say that I felt like the comic took a little bit of a dark turn hmm. because... Because of Shoko? Well, Shoko drugs uh, Kuranosuke's uh, brother and climbs into bed with him and takes a photo to convince him that they've had sex and he's apparently a virgin, but she's telling him otherwise. And then for, I think, reasons that make a lot of sense uh, in Japanese culture and probably are related to... Th- things you'd see in North American culture like no one's really taking him very seriously with his dilemma like oh they're just like oh good for you you had sex like you're a man like that must be congratulations she's really pretty and like his dad just wants to like basically marry him off to this woman because that's what you're supposed to do is just like find a woman and so now that he has this woman even though she's an awful awful person (laughs) but I I was I was actually kind of surprised like I I was kind of reading this like lighthearted manga about these otaku and then there's just like this yeah like this really dark turn with like this guy getting roofied and being like blackmailed and Shoko's constantly trying to like bring him ever deeper into these like compromising situations and he's constantly trying to get away from her and he's getting no support from anyone like because in, in the society in this culture in his family like this is just not, like, a dilemma that's taken seriously, you know? Yeah. No, it, it's interesting. It's it's a plot line that I agree it's, a, it's dark for the overall tone of the book, but it's also a, another thing that I hadn't seen before in manga. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, like, a man sort of being sexually harassed by a woman is definitely not something you're going to see in manga, or, well, in a lot of fiction, right? Mm-hmm. So, Or at least not taken seriously. Yes. I think, like... None of the characters take it seriously in the story, but I think the story takes it seriously. Yes, mm-hmm. I would agree with that. I think mm-hmm. the story is very, not impartial, but the way that they paint it is like, this is a very serious event, mm-hmm. uh, and it was wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think it was framed lightly. I don't think it was mm-hmm. flippant. Uh, it is it is pretty serious, and I think it, it's interesting, as you said, like, this dismissal is something that would that would occur. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, it, as as much as, like, it's it's uncomfortable and unpleasant like I also was reading it going like yup in fact I was kind of imagining like I could almost see a lot of readers um, also just kind of being like oh you know like she didn't really do anything to him she just slipped him a roofie like (laughs) it's fine like he's a man he's he's okay like he can take care of himself like except that clearly he can't (laughs) Right, he's like completely <laughs> incapable of like knowing how to react to this. Yeah, it seems yeah. to to hit him pretty hard, and I I feel uh, it, I I warmed up quite a bit to Shu. He's he's got complexity himself. Yeah. yeah. Where at first he he's when he's first introduced, he's this stodgy older brother who kind of towed the family line and was you know in line for inheriting the family business and. Uh, did not seem to have a lot of dimensionality to him, and the fact that he was a virgin was initially played off as a joke. And then this uh, this interest with Tsukimi starts to happen, and it seems genuine, and Tsukimi has actually a lot of affection for him, and then this this darkness is thrown in. 
and Shu starts to become a lot more complicated as a character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the triangle between Shoko and Tsukimi also becomes a little bit complex. Right. Tsukimi thinks... Tsukimi basically buys the story that everyone else is saying, which is like, oh, Shoko wooed Shu, and now they're together, and Tsukimi is kind of heartbroken. But mm-hmm. it makes it mm-hmm. really complex for Shu. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Especially because he doesn't know that Tsukimi... He thinks Tsukimi is two people. Right. Yeah. Like, that doesn't help. Yeah, because every time <laughs> he's caught with Shoko, he's she's in otaku form, so he doesn't realize that this woman he's in love with is constantly seeing him <laughs> with Shoko hanging off his arm. Um, and and she doesn't have, like, Tsukimi doesn't have the social skills to read any of the cues that maybe he's not into her. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. like, she just doesn't, doesn't read that. I mean, that is, I mean, that, in a way, that was the saddest thing to me about Tsukimi's character just in general is like throughout the progress of the story she's just constantly just talking herself down like mm. she's just constantly like I'm garbage oh she was obviously happier with this Shoko person because I'm the worst thing in the world like she's just constantly so hard on herself and it kind of makes me like sad for her because I'm just <laughs> like oh you're not you're fine. Like, you just really like jellyfish. There's nothing wrong with that. It's okay. <laughs> Hashtag relatable. Yeah. Uh, do we want to wrap up the discussion for volume one? Uh, sure. Let's do a quick rundown of the other house members first, just because they're all such fun characters. Sure. sure. Uh, okay, so I'm going to tell you a character and tell me what you think of them. Uh, well, we tell already me, talk- tell me their obsession. Yes. Okay. I when when I wrote down my note, I had to write a little picture too, so I knew what they <laughs> what they were on otaku for. Okay. So we talked about Tsukimi. We talked about uh, Kuranosuke. Uh, we talked about Chu. Um, what about Bamba? Bamba is obsessed with trains. Yeah. I <laughs> love her. <laughs> I, I, she is a phenomenal character design. <laughs> yeah. Um, in fact, something that like I don't think gets depicted a lot is like there are a significant amount of Japanese people who have curly hair and can get these nice big like kind of like afro kind of curly hairs if they wanted to and so I enjoy that her character design is just she's got this giant (laughs) ungainly like curly hair like afro on her head yeah yeah it's an amazing character design Mm -hmm. (laughs) um at one point I think I can't remember if it's in this volume or the second volume where uh someone refers to uh, Tsukimi as a um, Mizuki Shigeru character, and I think the same could be say, said about Banba. Like she mm. looks like kind of this like weird, old-fashioned kids manga character who's like yeah. in yeah. this world full of uh, more normal-looking people. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, anything else you want to say about Mayaya? Mayaya. Let's see. No, I just I love her energy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that Banba and Mayaya are probably like the most kind of two-dimensional cartoonish sort of members of the household, but they're also important because I think they bring a lot of the, I don't know, the humor and the local color, local flavor to the whole thing. Like, you got to have your kind of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern characters, (laughs) and I think that that's kind of the role that they're they're serving. Okay, what about (laughs) uh, Chieko, who is the doll and kimono Enthusiast. She's great. I, I really enjoy Chieko. Yeah. She's the responsible one. Yeah. She's the one who runs the household finances and basically acts as the manager. Yeah. Uh, but I love her kimono to collection and how 
she's just constantly in this really involved outfit that no one wears on a day to day basis because it's just way too complicated. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I like that when they do the makeovers, she just stays the same. Yeah, and she even gets a little. Well, I guess that's second volume too. But yeah. uh, spoiler alert: uh, when they do a second makeover, she's still in the kimono, and she's like, again. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, she's kind of regretting, like, everyone else gets a makeover, how come I don't? Yeah. Well, because you look fine. <laughs> well, see, I mean, I think I think that's kind of interesting, that, like, her obsession is basically, like, traditional Japan, and in Japan, there is room to just be traditional Japan. Like, if you wanted to be someone who just wore a kimono every day, like, no one would, in Japan, everyone would just be like, cool, that's your thing? You want to wear a kimono every day? Sure. That's fine. It's not weird. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like there's a, the only analog that I can think of that flies here is if someone wears a kimono. Oh, sorry, not a kimono, wears a kilt. Mm, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. like, the same thing. Yeah. yeah, but even then, people are like, really? Every day? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, you, I wouldn't say anything to someone who wore a kilt every day. I mean, they just like kilts. I know someone who wears a kilt every day. Yes, yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I mean... I, that's why I think you can get away with that. You yeah. Could, you could just wear a kilt and everyone would be like, oh, I guess you're just really into your, like heritage your scottish heritage sure or not, not necessarily but yeah fair um, enough, fair <laughs> enough. Um, but I, that's interesting though i wonder how far away you would have to go where that would not be the case like if you went to say like the southern u.s could you still wear a kilt every day hmm. huh, interesting hmm. i think probably yeah. no I'm not it sure, would though. depend on the i guess it probably depends on the amount of uh scottish settlers there are uh, a lot of there was a lot of scottish settlement in the south but i'm not sure they care as much about Scottishness as Canada does. Yeah. Canada is well, a Scotland otaku. Well, because I was, I mean, I was going to say, like, I mean, the epicenter in North America being Nova Scotia, where I'm <laughs> sure, like, you could just have, like, full, like, you know, garters and, like, the whole nine yards and people would just be like, okay, cool. Like, yeah, so there's a lot of Gaelic speakers. Are you, you going to go try to hit up the tourists at the cruise ship? Cause, uh, no, no, I'm just going to go toss some cables. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but before we wrap this episode up, though, just really quick, uh, one thing I was going to say that I enjoyed uh, as kind of an interstitial between the chapters was the autobio comic. Yeah, mm. yeah, I have that written down too. She confesses to her her own otakuness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was really interesting. Like, I I can see why she has also written autobio because, like, when I was actually uh, there was a point in second volume where I was like, oh, when are we going to get to the auto-bio flashback? I want to read that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why I noted uh, that that other book, which I think I might look into. Kaku Kaku Shika Jika. Uh, I don't know if it's been translated, but hmm. uh, I like the way that she writes, so it yeah. could be fun. But uh, can we just summarize that? really? Or, sure. Because like, what is it? Where does she... She starts with uh, one obsession. What was her first obsession? Oh, uh, it was the the runner. Was it No, no, the, the runner, runner came after. It was, she started with something else. Uh, let's see. Like I have I think, a physical book, so I'll I think she started faster. with... Uh, maybe she started with Jellyfish? No, she was... Or, um, oh, yes. She was obsessed with Jellyfish. Oh, that was it. She started with Jellyfish, but then it became this Japanese runner. Uh-huh. And, man, I agree, John. Like... When she's talking about how she's obsessed with this runner, and then it gets to the part in her <laughs> flashback. I don't know if we're getting ahead of ourselves, but just when it gets to the part in her flashback... Okay, we're, we're going to spoil the uh, autobio yeah, section I, from I Volume was, 2 right now. I okay. was hoping to discuss this in the second. Okay, okay we'll wait Well, then, then you know, we'll, we'll wait. hold off. But just the progression of that, and just like the fact that it's based on real events, I was like, 
that was really compelling. So I, I felt like that was a good like carrot to like just keep reading through because I'm like, oh, I got to get to the next autobio section. <laughs> <laughs> what happens next? <laughs> okay. Uh, any final thoughts? I guess they're not final because we have another episode to go. Yeah, I was excited to keep reading volume two after I read volume one. Me Which, too. After, hmm. after this many pages is saying something. <laughs> yeah, it it the first volume kind of breezed by. I I don't think I realized I was reading a manga this dense uh, until uh, I finished it, and I was like, wow, that was actually a pretty hefty hefty manga. I mean, that's the danger of reading on the iPad is you just don't yeah. appreciate <laughs> how many pages you have left. Yeah, it's that's about an beauty, inch thick in physical form. But yeah, it, it almost four hundred pages. It's um yeah I think it uh, it 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 looked like it could be something that was really really cliche and then I was really delighted that it kept walking towards the cliches and then like making a sharp left and mm-hmm. I I really enjoyed that about this. Okay, do you have any shout outs? Yes, uh, yeah. I would like to shout out uh, a recent short story that was written by Melanie Gilman. Uh, it's called Sweetwater. Oh, yeah. It's about an ogre who abducts women, and I thought it was really clever. I've read it a few times now just because I enjoyed it so much, so I really recommend checking that one out. It's a quick read. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, Melanie is best at colors. Mm. Oh, and who are you, by the way? Uh, my name is Jam. You can find my older comics at wastedtalent.ca. I know I'm not doing anything. I don't, I don't do comics anymore. <laughs> That's a lie because we're working on a comic together. Make sure we finish. That one's done. <laughs> Your part of that is done. I'm, not, I'm still working on it. <laughs> uh, she said it's done, therefore it's wow. done. <laughs> well, he, two of the pages are going to be black and white then. Oh, okay. No, they'll have the watercolor in them. Okay, all right. The important part. Yeah. All, right. all right, so I'm Jeff Ellis. I find my work at jeffreyellis.ca. Occasionally, I'm hoping to kind of improve from like uh, one page every six months. We'll see. Yeah, uh, I'll just shout out uh, the last thing I was reading, which uh, I started reading The Wicked and the Divine, written by Kieran Gillen and art by uh, Jamie McElvey, McElvey? I'm not sure how to pronounce that. But I'm not sure if I would uh, put this forward as a trade waiters or not yet, but I'm in the process of reading it. So uh, I'm just going to shout that out as what I'm currently reading. Okay. I'm Jonathan. You can find my work at phobos-comic.com, although there's nothing new there in the last while. That is oh, going to change. All of us are losing our cred. I've, I've got character designs for Chapter 3 now. Nice. So I really like them. They're good characters. They're going to be fun. So I'm going to shout out the latest book by Miriam Labicki, who is the cartoonist-in-residence at the Vancouver Public Library this year. Uh, and her latest book, I finally finished reading it, it's called Toward a Hot Jew. Uh, not as provocative as the title might imply, but it's really interesting. It goes into a lot of sort of identity issues and uh, philosophy, and um, Miriam is really smart. Um, like, if you just have a conversation with her, you won't necessarily get all this really, really deep knowledge and thought process that she goes through, but man... She thinks a lot about a lot of things. Nice. Yeah, and congratulations to Miriam for, for getting the writer-in-residence spot here. Yeah. Uh, I know there was a rigorous selection process. I'm not sure that we've ever had a graphic novelist before in residence at the at VPL. I believe this is the first time, although there have been a few years that they've said it was possible, and this is the first time that it's happened. Yeah. 
Nice. Thanks, BPL, I, for yeah. putting up a spot for a writer in residence. Yeah, I hope I hope this becomes a, a trend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have a lot of good cartoonists that would qualify. Uh, okay, so our next episode will be Volume 2 of Princess Jellyfish. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record in the Inspiration Lab and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at tradewaiters.tumblr.com on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Mm-hmm.